Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You too can be a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive content and previews of videos and all kinds of stuff, but mostly they help me put on shows like this. So thank you all uh, very much for that. So yeah, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Lots of interesting, lots of interesting things to to talk about today. We have so today, thank you. Today is the last week of the Lazy D and D, the Lazy DM's Companion Kickstarter. So we have only about four days left in the Kickstarter, and it's been going very, very. I I I'm couldn't be couldn't be happier uh, couldn't be happier with the support. And I have a couple interesting things to show. So we have, while the Kickstarter has been doing so well, we've been pushing heavily on the design, on the layout, on the editing. We're trying to do as much stuff in parallel as we can do and commissioning art and commissioning maps. And I have a new map that I just got from Daniel Walthall, who is doing all of the internal cartography. This is a village map. And the intent of these kind of maps is to make them as useful as possible in different ways that you can use them for different things. So you need a village for just, you know, a regular village map, or you want one for like the seven samurai defend the village. Can you can you use a map this way? And so, yeah, so we have lots of maps and the maps are gonna be at sort of a larger aperture than the maps that we have in the Lazy DMs workbook. The workbook is more tactical. This is more more general. So this is an example of one of the maps uh, that's coming out. I think it looks I think it looks really really cool. Daniel's very very talented at hand drawn. So who broke the obelisk? You tell me, man. What's underneath it? Lots of cool things there. The other piece I have another piece of art that I can show off. So Matt Morrow is doing all of the internal art. And this is an undead dragonborn knight that we commissioned for one of the pieces. So we have numerous internal pieces. The tricky bit with the internal art is the maps, not so much. The maps, we can commission all of them ahead of time or we're all set. The internal art, I don't know which pages need them yet. And until the thing is laid out, I won't know where the spaces are exactly or how big the spaces will be. So we're trying to commission the art as much as we can with what we know about the layout. But a lot of the art we won't be able to commission until the layout is done. And then it takes time for the artwork to come back from that. So that 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 will you know, that's one part that I really wish is in, in parallel, but is really in series. The Red Headsman, yeah. So I, there is a Patreon adventure called The Red Headsman, the Tomb of the Red Headsman that I just put out this month. And that is The Red Headsman right there. You want a, you want a piece of artwork for The Red Headsman? I, po- I posted this, by the way, in the, in the Discord, the Patreon Discord. So if somebody wants to use it for The Red Headsman, you have it available. Anyway, I wanted to show off those couple of pieces of art for the Kickstarter. But if you want to get in on the Kickstarter, now is a great time. You can jump in. You can order whatever books you want. You can order all the different various packages. And uh, it's going to be awesome. And yeah, the final day for that is Thursday, Thursday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Kickstarter is closed. So ending soon. So that is the Lazy Dames Companion. This week, this past week, I had the great opportunity of jumping on D- the D&D Beyond uh, channel to talk with Amy Dallin about Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. I do not have a preview, but we were able to go through some of the publicly released material from Fizzbands to talk about to talk about that kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And it's very cool to kind of talk about the lore of the monsters that are in this book. Fizzbands is coming out on Tuesday, I think. And so I think that Tuesday, it'll be on Dini Beyond. So I'll, I'll have it on Dini Beyond then. And I'm really looking forward to digging into it. It looks like it's going to be a cool book. I, I expect and I hope it to be of the same kind of general feeling and quality as, as Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So that means two really good kind of interesting source books that have come out for 5e, I think, this year that are, that are, that are going to be really cool. So I'm looking for, very much looking forward to that. But you can see that video. Uh, I will paste... The URL to that video in the show notes so you can you can see that. So yeah, that was a fun that was a fun time. The other thing that happened this past week is Call from the Nether Deep got announced. Call from the Nether Deep is the next critical role. It's not a source book. This is actually a campaign adventure. Third to twelfth level campaign adventure set in Critical Role's world of Exandria. And I'm pretty sure James Hake had a lot to do with this, because I've seen James Hake talking about it. And James Hake has done a lot of different D&D stuff, and he's worked very closely with the Critical Role team on their book. So, yeah. 
And so that's very that's very interesting. It means that there are now four critical role books from three different publishers. There are two from Wizards of the Coast. There's one that is coming out from Darrington Press, which is Critical Role's press imprint. And then there's the original critical role book, which was, I forget what it was called, that came out from Green Ronin, which I think is out of print. So that that is very that that is very interesting. It was interesting that they did not they announced this like a few weeks after like not even a like a couple of weeks after they announced this like a couple of weeks after they did their big D&D celebration. So it's interesting that it wasn't part of the D&D celebration. I wonder if there was some like weird announcement holdback or something like that. So that is coming out March March 15th of 2020. So yep, March 15th 2022. So that's that's very interesting. And it's interesting to just think about Watsi in the role as a as a publisher of someone else's campaign world, right? This is a different relationship. Critical Role is so big that this the, putting out a book like this is a different kind of relationship than they do with anything else. This is not an Eberron kind of situation where they bought the world, right? They don't own this world, so they're just licensing it. It would be like if they did a Star Wars book, right? So I think that that's, it's, it's very interesting from kind of a business standpoint. And I'm sure the material will be great. And it's a, a much like the material that's in the other book that's sitting on my shelf, whose title I can't read because I blocked it. Then the other Critical Role book that came out, the other source book, there's lots, even if you're not into the Critical Role world, even if not using it, there's lots of stuff to pilfer for our own game. So I, I'm excited for it. I think it'll be cool. Speaking of Critical Role, boy, so they had their season three premiere last Thursday, right? This past Thursday, that certainly, I think I logged in at 10.30, so I'm on Eastern Standard Time, right? So I logged in at 10.30 Eastern Standard Time to poke my head in and see what was going on. And there were 225,000 people watching at that moment. Then the next morning at about six in the morning, I woke up. And I went and said, saw that they had rebroadcast it again. I guess they shot the whole thing and then immediately shot it again so that different time zones could do it. And during the rerun at six in the morning, Eastern Standard Time on Friday, there was like 53,000 people watching or 23,000 people watching. Tens of thousands of people were watching the rerun then. And then they shot it again later. So holy cow, we already know that Critical Role is the number one streaming show on Twitch, which is really interesting. Think about the fact that Twitch is a platform designed for people to show off video games, right? And the number one show on their own network is a show about people playing a tabletop game, right? That is fascinating. It shows you the power of these tabletop games. When you think about it, it's like the ultimate retro game, right? Like retro games are getting really popular and, and that did. So they, the, the other interesting thing is that Variety Magazine had a whole spread about Critical Role in their in their show with lots of interest, lots of cool pictures of the crew and the cast, and uh, big discussion. Like, look at these pictures, you know, crazy, crazy fun. There's an awesome Matt Mercer picture, right? And it just talks about the popularity of this show, and like it's it's practically eclipsing D and D almost, right? Kinda, maybe not quite, but kinda, right? And so I find that just really interesting. Then the other thing that I was very interested in, and, and I'll, I'll talk about why, is that they did a video on YouTube about the gaming room, right? It was just like an eight-minute video about the room that they built, the studio that they built to run this, to run their campaign, and the amount of energy and effort that they put in. But look, the video's got almost a million views, 750,000 views on that video that talk about what it was like to set it up. And they had two different amusement park designers come in, two different ones that came in and helped them design, helped them design this room, right? That every like aspect of it, there's all these different pieces of it. The lanterns in the corners are all unique. And you know, the, like the table, right? So, so this is what the table looks like. It looks like an arrowhead, right? And the back of the arrowhead is where Matt Mercer sits. And like, look how wide, it's like a six foot wide DM screen, right? Incredible. And he's got two sound panels with all of his, or all of the, what are those things called? Those little devices where you can hit a button and it switches views and all that stuff, right? He's got, and what I like is like, if you look over here in the lower right corner by the far side, he's got the little Coke ring bottles that we used back in the fourth edition days. He's got a bunch of little Coke ring bottles. So, you know, yeah, stream decks, right? So he's got a couple of different stream decks so that he can control all the sound. Every individual person is mic'd. Everybody's, they, they've got two different cameras. The whole, I think the room is designed like a triangle. I don't think it's rectangular. And I think that that's so, 
he can get it. And I remember one of the one of the Watsi guys talking about how they got to run a game there, and he said it's the best gaming table they've ever run at because they didn't have to like turn their head ninety degrees to talk to anybody. They could just look left and right, and everybody in the table was there. Right, everybody, everybody was there. So that's it's really interesting. And this this to me, like when we talk, I love to think about, and I, I talk about it, and I think about it all the time about the range of the range of of money that we can spend on this hobby right and it really does go from 0 to not infinite infinite is a really big number 0 to millions of dollars right and I would love people's estimates let's do some crowdsourcing there's there's 80 people watching on the Twitch channel which is awesome people in Twitch how much do you think it cost to build this set Right, that's the question. How much do you think it costs to build this set? I have my estimate, but before I before I bias the group, I'd love to hear a bunch of people in Twitch talk about how much you think it's worth. I see, wow, see we're already like multiple orders of magnitude different in some, in some people's assessments. Yeah, look at that, multiple orders of magnitude of, of people going back and forth. I see 50,000, 500,000, 800,000, 350,000. Two people at 350,000. One person, 3 million, 250,000, 100 to 200,000, 500,000, 750,000, all over the map. I would, I, would, I would expect, you know, so given that they had, it, the whole place is custom built, right? The whole place is custom built. Every part of it, the table is custom built, the screens are custom built. Now, if you include the AV equipment, right? If you include all of the audio, all the video, all of the stuff that's going on there, but the, the custom built walls, the lanterns, all that stuff, I bet you if you include all the equipment, it could certainly hit a million dollars. I think that could be a million dollar studio. If it's, if you just, if you stripped out all the AV stuff and it was just the physical, that's at least a half a million dollars. Wouldn't surprise me. So you think about a million dollar gaming room, right? Like what would it be like if you had a million dollar gaming room, right? And what would it be like to run there? But then here's another thought exercise for you, right? This is, this is what I'm really interested in. So pretend that you and your gaming group, think, think about you and your gaming group, right? If you're, if you're a DM and you're running your games, ask yourself on a scale of one to 10, think about like your last game that you ran, right? Last good game, right? So in case you had like a disaster game last time, sorry. If you did, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for bringing that up. But let's say you had, let, look at your last good game. On a scale of one to 10, how good was that game? Right? Put that number in your head. Think it and don't overthink it. Don't be like, well, I don't know about what people's opinion. In your opinion, on a scale of one to ten, how good was your game? If I think back to the game that I ran on Wednesday night, what did they do Wednesday night? They dealt with a lot of stuff. I would give that a seven. I would say my last game was a seven out of ten. Now take that same game that you ran with your same friends, the same stuff that's going on, and Sit it in this studio. Imagine it in this studio. You suddenly get access to a million-dollar studio that you can run your game in. Now, how good would that game be? Would it be a 10? Does it go all the way up? The, can, the same game, same situation, same scenes, all the stuff that you just ran, you know, but you had like better AV equipment. Let's say you had ways to project stuff on, on the wall so that people could see what's going on. You know, all that stuff. How much better would it be? 10% better? Would it go from a 7 to an 8? Does it go up? two points? Would it be seven to nine? I don't know. But what I find interesting about that, yeah, so one question is like, okay, I ran my game online and this would be in person and in person would be better. I, I You kind of have to, you know, abstract it online versus in person because that, that has a big thing. But like, right. And so Salicious gets to my point, which is money only gets you about one to three points. You're only going to increase your game maybe 10 to 30%. And I would argue, yeah, some people say, yeah, from a seven to an eight, right? And I think that's really interesting that like going from your living room or your dining room, you know, like, you know, or, or online to the best D&D studio probably in the world, right? I think it's, I think one could argue about whether or not this is the best, the best D&D studio in the world would take you at one point, right? Which means this stuff doesn't really matter, right? The stuff, their studio is fantastic. And obviously it's really cool. How much better is the game than if you are around a decent dining room table sitting and playing with your friends, Right. Not, not that different. So I think that that's something to keep in mind because something when we watch shows like this, I think that when we talk about the Mercer effect and we watch shows like this and when we see, and I, 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 I cause this, right? I cause FOMO, right? 
I, I don't want to, the fear of missing out. So the fear of missing out is an actual bias that exists. It is a, or an actual psychological circumstance in which we look at people online, particularly online, particularly on social media and think, wow, their life is so much better than mine. Boy, I wish my life could be like that. And the reality is they're just as miserable, <laughs> you know, or as happy as you are. Like, you know, so, you know, FOMO is such a real thing. And it's like, we often look at people at their best when we're looking at social media. There's a lot of science about this, a lot of studies about this, that we're looking at people at their best. I think one of the, one, one of my favorite stories that I heard about this was on a, I think it was on, I can't remember what the podcast was, but they were talking about the psychology of social media and what it's doing and, and the creation of FOMO and stuff like that. And it was a woman and a woman was saying that like, yeah, she was, she was, you know, young and starting off a career and kind of into her career. And she saw that all her friends were getting married and all her friends were having kids. And she looked on Instagram and she saw like all of her old childhood friends with, you know, getting married and going on honeymoons and having children and all the life of the children. And she's like, God, and I'm just missing out on all this because I'm spending all my time in my career. And she's like, so I just kind of met a guy and he was a good guy. And we said, okay, well, let's get married. And we got married and then we had a kid and that was great. And I was in the middle of it thinking like, is, you know, this doesn't feel like the way I thought it felt with my friends and stuff like that. And then, and then she's like, you know, I was on a plane ride with him. We were on a trip going to Paris and we fought the entire trip. We fought from the plane ride through the trip, arguing and bickering the whole time. And on the, on the way back, we decided we needed to get a divorce, right? On the way back from the trip. But I'd also had been taking pictures of the trip. And the whole time I'm looking at my Instagram and all the comments are, oh, you guys are so great together and you guys are so happy together and you guys are, oh, you're such a perfect couple and all this stuff. And he's just like, it was a miserable time. <laughs> she goes, we hated each other, right? And she goes, so then I go back and I'm talking to my old friends and they're like, yeah, we got divorced too, right? And she's like, holy, when did you get divorced? Well, you know, because you, know, you know what people don't do? They don't post Instagram photos of them getting divorced, right? <laughs> they don't post stuff like that. And so- Instead, what you're getting is you're comparing, you know, that you, I'm, I'm being, this, what, the, what the article was talking about is if, essentially the fact that you're comparing your median day to other people's best day <laughs> and it won't match up, right? So, you know, the, so, so the key to all of this is like, it's very easy for us to go on social media and look at studios like this and gosh, oh man, imagine how much better my game would be if I was at a studio. And the answer is like we just kind of showed, it's probably 10% better, <laughs> right? Maybe, right? Maybe 10% better. So, you know, you know, so I think that that is a really interesting thing and something to keep in mind as we poke our heads up in the D&D community and look around at stuff like that, and we look at, you know, Critical Role. One of the things about Critical Role that occurs to me is like, here's this group of friends. They've been playing together for a long time. They clearly love each other. They're clearly great friends. They're clearly well-connected. And they can't ever decide, you know what we want to do? We want to take our game back to being in person just for ourselves again, right? They can't do that. I mean, maybe they do it, but like, you know, they can't just say, yeah, you know, it'd be, I, like the streaming is great, but having 250,000 people watching us while we're playing, that's a little bit high stress and we'd like to just take it back and run our own game. Like they can't do that, right? So I don't know, it's fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating to me. And, and I think the key lesson that I would say is your game is great, right? Love, love your game, love your friends, love the one you're with, right? Love the ones you're with, love where you're playing. Playing D&D is so important, right? And then don't let, any of like the, the views don't let, like when I post pictures of Dwarven Forge setups, but the example I brought up was like, and I, I, where did I, where was I talking about this before? But I built this great big Dwarven Forge setup for an adventure. And I had all my friends stage a photo of them looking at it going like, oh, this is the best, right? And it was one of the worst D&D games I ever ran, right? I had like $1,500 worth of Dwarven Forge on the table and it was the worst game I ever ran. So, and I ran it again with all the same Dwarven Forge and it sucked again a second time, right? So like the stuff doesn't, this doesn't do it. And the best stuff is free. Uh, I have a couple of articles. I wrote an article about this called Select the Right Accessories. Uh, I just posted, I think last week, I'll post that here, which talks about the fact that you should, you know, before you buy stuff, really think about how much of an impact the stuff you're going to buy is going to have in the game. And particularly, is it going to have a negative impact? Is this going to complicate things rather than simplify things? Is this making it easier for you to share stories with your friends? Or is it gitchy stuff? And this is from a guy who spends a tremendous amount of money on accessories and then puts them in cargo containers or puts them in big Tupperware containers and sticks them in the closet. So I, I'm, I'm speaking from experience with this. And it's hard to admit it. It's very hard to admit it. When you have a big investment in it, when you've invested in a lot of stuff, you don't want to hear that stuff doesn't help your game. But that doesn't mean it's helping you. 
So fascinating stuff. Really, I, I, I don't know. I'm very, I'm very interested in this idea. And it's still cool to think. I think it's cool to think about that. I think it's cool to imagine that. And I do like the idea of like, you know, a bunch of three by five cards and a pencil you stole at the, at the racetrack, you know, is as good an accessory as you need to be able to share stories of adventures compared to a million dollar studio, a dining room table, or, you know, a, a, a table at the local library that you can go visit, right? You know, any, anything, getting your friends around a table, you know, or online, setting up a Discord channel and playing with your friends online. You know, it's within 10 to 30% of the kind of game you'd have if you were sitting in a million dollar studio. I think that's very interesting. Mastering Dungeons is, I'm pretty sure, my favorite D&D podcast. Mastering Dungeons, if uh, there, there's some news items that I'm not going to talk about this week, and I recommend you listen to the Mastering Dungeons podcast with my friends, Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin. I was on there last week when Teos was in Italy. Teos is back, and I had a really good time listening to the two of them talk on this week's show, and they brought up some really interesting... They cover news as well. So, like, the you know, this, this show that we're watching right now and their show, sometimes there's some overlap, but I, I, I'm probably going to overlap a little less with them because they do such a good job. I don't need to talk about a lot of the business side of things, I think. So I recommend you listen to their, their show, the Mastering Dungeons podcast. I will link it in the show notes below, of course. And uh, they had two really interesting topics. Uh, one was uh, Watsi's earnings in 2020 is on a, continues on a six-year growth streak and earned 30% in 2020 during the pandemic when many places went out of business, when it changed, it changed business in general, it changed everything, really, this last 18 months. And in that time, Watsi increased, uh, the, the, the growth of D&D, D&D grew 30% in 2020 from 2019. So I was curious, like, well, what does that mean if we look at historical trends? So I actually created a little page here uh, where I did some, I went and I did some, some web research, right? And I took a look and I wanted to see like, what were the trends over the years? And I found some interesting things. So 2019 to 2020, according to CNBC, was a 30%, 33% growth from 2019 to 2020, right? 2020 was 33% greater than 2019. Then I went back to 2019 to 2018. I couldn't find anything about growth overall. I looked at a bunch of different articles and the problem is like it came up with the same thing. But Wizards of the Coast themselves posted a thing, a, a big infographic that they use for also for their, uh, they're a publicly traded company. So they can't really... You know, I think they can't legally lie about this kind of thing, right? They claim 65% growth from 2018 to 2019 in Europe. I don't know why they picked Europe. The question is like, would Europe have been a big spike over other countries? I, I'm not so sure. Maybe it was probably, it might've been less in North America. It's hard to say. They didn't say North America, so we don't really know. But 65% growth in Europe for D&D from 2018 to 2019. 27 to 2018, according to Bloomberg, was 52% growth right? 2016 to 2017, 44% growth. And remember, this is compounding growth, right? Every year, it's insane growth. Yes, yeah, Salacious says that is insane growth. It really is. And one thing that you need to know about whenever you're talking about percentage growth like this is every year, it gets significantly harder to get growth equal to what you got last year because you grew that much bigger. It's like Apple, right? Apple is not going to double their revenue again because they're so big. Doubling the revenue would be you know, hundreds of times bigger than it was when they doubled the revenue initially, right? So this idea, like when we see 65 to 33, you might go, oh my God, they lost half. Well, no, 33% was on top of this growth that you've seen year over year. So I wanted to go back to like, well, I think I think D, &D Next came or, or fifth edition came out around 2014. So was that me for 2014? And I couldn't find anything for that, but I did find Canadian book sales of D&D, &D, which did track back all the way to 2005. Let's look at the original here. 2009, right? So this is in the fourth edition era, right? And you can see what the growth of the books were from 20, this is Canadian book sales from a particular avenue. Where is it? And they said the category saw 77% growth in print units between 2016 and 2017. BNC sales data, which I, which is, I think these are like Canadian book sales. So it's, it's a slice of it. It's not the whole thing. But what's interesting is you can see the growth 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, right? And you can see there's like an interesting that there was a dip from 2014 to 2015, but then you get this steep spike and that spike can continued all the way to 2021. So I think it's interesting to look at. I also put like a bunch of other, I'll link to this in the show notes as well. It's kind of my notes that I, that I took from a bunch of different places. The last one I took here was the trends on Google trends 
right? With of twenty five percent, where it, you know essentially goes up to like a hundred. You know, a hundred is their base, right, around here. So interesting, interesting stuff. They, will it level off? I don't know. I actually asked this a few years ago. I asked a poll. I said, "Do you think, do you think D and D will continue to grow as fast as it's been growing? Do you think it will the growth will continue to grow, but it'll slow down, or will it level off, or will it fall?" And I think most people said like it's probably going to grow slowly, which is probably the right answer, right? That because you know you're generally what your expectations are is that it will it will you know begin to grow slowly. Anyway, I found that to be very interesting. The other topic that they talked about on mastering dungeons is the Paizo Union. So um, I'm not going to talk about it too much. You can go listen to them. But basically, what happened? Paizo had a lot of bad PR in the last few months or last month or so. And uh, with some employees coming forward, they fired somebody that in big question of whether or not they should have fired him or not. They fired, it sounds like they might've fired the wrong person, hard to say, but a bunch of people came forward. Jessica Price had a big long tweet where she talked about all kinds of stuff when she worked, worked there, everything from like the studio where they, or the place where they worked hadn't been vacuumed in, you know, like a decade, you know, all kinds of stuff. It broke multiple vacuums, trying to vacuum the place. And, um, so the Paizo employees announced that they uh, were forming a union and they did. They formed that union. They worked with a larger union group. I forget the name of the union group. They formed this union. And not only that, but the Paizo freelancers held back. They, the, basically, the Paizo freelancers went on a strike and said, all of the work we're currently doing for you, plus all of the work we we're going to do from you, we are not going to do it. We're going to stop work. Until you until you accept the Paizo union of your employees, which is interesting because the freelancers are not the employees, two different groups, right? And the freelancers aren't part of the union, but the freelancers are saying support the union or you're not getting anything from us. And Paizo shockingly said, wow, so all of our freelancers who we rely on are not going to deliver product if we don't support this union. And the super majority of employees in our own company are a part of this union and they look back and forth and realize, I think we're completely boned, right? I think we're, I'm pretty sure we embrace the union, right? And so, of course, we embrace the union. We're excited to work with them. We're, we're, we believe that this is going to be a struggle because guess what? The alternative was you're totally destroyed. So, yeah, they, 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 one thing that happened since Teos and Sean talked about this on the Mastering Dungeons podcast was that Paizo accepted the union. And so now it's going to be a very long process of negotiation. Some, I'm sure we'll hear some interesting news, but a lot of it is going to be behind closed doors, right? Negotiations are going, because it's a private company, you know, it's probably a lot of the stuff that's going to happen is going to be behind closed doors. So who knows what we'll see? And it'll probably be years in the making. So yeah, anyway, I thought that was a very interesting topic as well. But if you want to hear more discussion about that, listen to the Mastering Dungeons podcast where they, where they, talk, about, where they talk about that kind of thing. I want to talk about two Kickstarters that are going on, three, my own, right? But two other Kickstarters that are going on at the same time. Uh, Level Up Advanced 5e. I, I think I talked about this a little bit. Level Up Advanced 5e is a completely compatible take and full, full book take on a 5e game so they are creating the equivalent of like a player's handbook and a monster manual and a and a and a, and a dungeon master's guide they're calling the adventurer's guide trials and treasure and the monstrous menagerie are the three main books of this of this series and what i find particularly interesting about its design is that it is a full it is a full rpg on its own right you can you can buy just this thing and it's its full running rpg on its own so if you want a different take on 5e you now have a different take on 5e that you can that you can play incom incomplete but because it is fully compatible with 5e you can take any of the components of this game and drop it into your existing 5e game an example was i can take the monstrous menagerie and take monsters that i like from it and run them in my 5e game as though i bought Toma Beasts, right? As though I bought a monster book from another game, which is probably how I'm going to use it, right? There are probably things in the treasure, the trials and treasure book where you go, oh, that's an interesting take on how to do this thing, the exploration or other, other aspect that they do. I'm going to drop that into my 5e game and you can drop it in. They claim that you can even take a class, an entire class that exists in the adventurer's guide and run it alongside the classes from like the player's handbook and they run perfectly fine side by side. So that is a really interesting approach and I applaud it. I think that is I think that's an excellent approach. It is if I had to do something like this, this is how I would do it. I would say I think it's really cool to have a single game. I would probably try to make it one book. I would try to do what 13th Age did and try to put an entire RPG in one book and then I would make as much of that book individual pieces of it compatible uh with existing 5e games so that people could take what they like and throw away what they don't. I think that's a really cool approach. So I backed it. Uh, I, I backed the PDF. There's a PDF tier 
kind of expensive, but again, because it's three books and they're all big books, right? They're big, big standard stuff. So it's not, it's not dirt cheap, right? So uh, really cool, really interesting. I, I, I applaud the approach. I think it'll be very, and, and I, I really want to take a good look at it. So yeah, I thought that was, that was neat. That was something worth uh, looking at. The other one is Raiders of the Serpent Sea. Raiders of the Serpent Sea is a, a role-playing book. What does that mean? It's a campaign for 5e. It is done by the same people who did Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, they, they, the lead designer of Dragon Age Origins and Neverwinter Nights. So video game designers of, of video games. And I think they worked on the original Baldur's Gate. They did a Baldur's Gate book. I think on the DMs Guild, you can see a, there's a Baldur's Gate book that they did. And did they do the Minsk and Boo book? That's right. Yeah. So they did the Minsk and Boo book that's on, that's on the DMs Guild as well. Boy, they had a big pledge goal, right? This $161,000 pledge in order to back it, which is surprising. Most groups underbid their, you know, underbid the Kickstarter so that they'll get a success right away. Heroes of Baldur's Gate, that's right. And so they have a uh, a big book and they they did it. I'll tell you, like I got Odyssey of the Dragon Lords and it is a incredible package, right? I, I got the physical version of Odyssey of the Dragon Lords and it is a gorgeous book, really well done. A lot of people highly recommend it as a campaign adventure. This one is a Norse campaign. And it uh, looks really cool. So another one, this is another one that I backed. Beautiful artwork. You know, one thing like a lot of these, the page design and the artwork is really, really good. Really, really cool stuff. I'm sure, uh, you know, assuming they do as good a job as they did with uh, Odyssey, the Dragon Lords, it looks like it's going to be really cool. So yeah, two exciting Kickstarters. I, I, I had made a statement, I think a few years ago. Hindsight's easy, though. It's easy to look at. I make lots of statements, and many of them turn out to be false, but some of them turn out to be true, like everybody. I really think that the most interesting things that are happening in the RPG space, you can see on Kickstarter. That Kickstarter is a really interesting way to see the stuff that is making a difference. And it's because people are willing to take big risks on their ideas on Kickstarter and then get the funding that they need to, to make that risk happen. It, I've, I used it, right? Like I've, all of my products, projects that I've done have been risks. I don't know if people want to see them or not, you know, and they've turned out to be big. When you hear about what I originally thought Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master was going to look like, it was going to be a black and white staple bound short book, right? I thought that's what it was going to be. The Kickstarter did really well and it became a lot bigger. So it's really fascinating uh, to see the hobby evolve through Kickstarter. And that's, you know, I, I really like, I think Kickstarter is a fantastic platform for bringing these experimental projects to life. It formed MCDM, right? One of the largest RPG publishers right now, or certainly one of the most well-known RPG publishers. You know, it, MCD, it, MCDM was created because Matt Colville had a really outstanding Kickstarter and was able to build a company off of it. Isn't Kickstarter off, this is a good question. Isn't Kickstarter offloading the risk to the buyers rather than an investor creator? Probably, yes. And I think it definitely behooves Kickstarter backers to consider the likelihood that they're going to get what they're asking for, right? I, so, so the average, here's a, here's a, I think a Kickstarter did a big study of this and they asked like how many Kickstarters fail? How many Kickstarters fail to deliver after they've received their funding? And the answer is one in 10, right? That was a general base rate. The general base rate is one in 10. So I've backed 160 Kickstarters or something like that. I've backed a tremendous number of Kickstarters. And I can tell you my ratio of successful to fails is way, my failure rate is way lower than that. I'm more like one in a hundred. I think I have two or three that didn't deliver. I have some that delivered and they didn't really deliver what I wanted. Maybe it's higher than that. It's probably four or five out of like 160, but it's not one in 10. It maybe it's one in 20, you know, and so yeah, there is a risk and that risk is put on people. And there are definitely times where you'll look at a Kickstarter and you'll have to figure out like, do the, you know, is the money the thing that is going to limit this group, right? And sometimes it is, right? And sometimes it's not the money, it's other things. And like, they don't really know what they're doing and they think money is going to solve the problem and it's not. And you have to be careful. You have to be careful backing Kickstarters if you, if you, uh, are if you think that they might not be able to deliver what they're going to deliver. So yeah, as a if you're investing your 20 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever it is you're putting in $10 depending on what you're backing. You have to ask yourself like am I, am I willing to lose that $10, right? Because I might not get what I'm want to get. I mean it happens. So yeah, so there's some people that actually kind of they don't like that idea. They don't like they think that it's sort of not not dishonest exactly, but it's sort of misrepresenting how things are going when you put up a Kickstarter. 
But I look at it and it's like the products we're getting are so much better. Like Dwarven Forge stuff is so much better than it was because of Kickstarter. You know, many of these books are so much better. And as a producer, I can tell you, the books that I've put out are much better because of Kickstarter. Many of them never would have happened, right? Many of them never would have happened. And, you know, you look at Wormwood, right? They make physical stuff, right? Dice trays and dice boxes and stuff like that, right? I really like, they make really good tabletop accessories and they are now like built on Kickstarter, right? They had these tremendously big Kickstarters. So there a lot of groups are built their businesses around Kickstarter. And I think that model works, right? It works because you're essentially getting customers to support your product and you get to decide what you're going to be able to make based on the funding that you got. And that's, that's outstanding. So I'm a huge fan of Kickstarter, both obviously I'm a big fan because it's working really well for me as a publisher, but also I'm a big fan and I do, I back, I've, I've backed like a hundred, more than 150 Kickstarters, right? And I wouldn't have backed that many if I thought I was getting ripped off. I think I'm getting way cooler stuff than I would normally. So I'm a big fan of Kickstarter and yeah, so Raiders of the Serpent Sea looks really cool. Uh, I backed it and I would, I would suggest taking a look at it and seeing if it's right for you. Cool. So let's talk about some Patreon questions. So every month I post a post on my the Sly Flourish Patreon page asking for questions. What kind of questions do you have that you'd like to hear me talk about on this show or that might spawn a video that I do on YouTube separately? Like some, some of the questions are, are, are really good and I want to do a video just on that or an article on Sly Flourish. Many times they are questions that I've heard before or I've written about or I've done a video before, in which case in the Patreon I will say, oh, great question. Here's the answer that I already posted. But I've got some that we're going to talk about today, and I'm hoping to get through a few because I've got I've got some time. Jamie says, recently you talked about wanting to run a more lighthearted campaign for a change. Do you have any tips for making a D&D adventure feel more lighthearted? How does one run a campaign without the fate of the world on the line? So those two sides to that and that second line, that second question and the first question that aren't necessarily the same because it makes the assumption that having the world on the line means the adventure can't be lighthearted. So I was talking about this with my wife this morning, with Michelle this morning. And so the first thing I think one can do, so I don't, I, I'm not sure, I don't have like a perfect answer to this. Like, oh yeah, I've thought about this for a year and here's the answer, right? But I have some thoughts. And some, some things that might be the case are like, when you sit down to come up with your six truths of the campaign, you want to look at those truths and be like, how dark are they? Like you still want to, it's still a D&D &D game. You still want to threat. You still want to have adventures. So lighthearted isn't there's no challenge, that there's nothing challenge. And one of the things I thought is that a lighthearted adventure, a clear villain could be the sign of a lighthearted adventure. That like when you have ambiguous villains, when you have hidden villains, or you have like villains that are right under your nose, like political leaders, when you have to work for one villain against another villain, when you're choosing the lesser of two evils, these are all kind of dark campaign ideas. But when you have a source of good in the world and you have a source of evil in the world and they're very separate from one another, it's it's a little bit more lighthearted, right? And I'll, I'll give like a Lord of the Rings example, right? Sauron is like a good villain for a lighthearted adventure because, you know, you don't have this like corruption of the good. When you put Saruman in there, well, Saruman the White is like, you know, theoretically, he was always kind of a jerk, right? But kind of a good guy, but he gets twisted and converted so now Gandalf's best friend and mentor turns on him that's the sign of like a dark campaign right the the having the orcs attacking the city is like you know that that can be kind of a major threat in a light campaign but when your own king is willing to sacrifice his own son that's a dark campaign right the corruption of whatever the jackass the jackass steward of Gondor right you know, that that is when things get to be kind of dark. So I think you can still have like a clear villain and the more villainous they are and the more the De uh, Denethor, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the yeah, Denethor. And, like, that's kind of the sign of a dark campaign when you're when you're sort of twisting it, when you're putting the characters in impossible situations where they have to choose one side over another. You know, one, one, you know, which which is the lesser of two evils that that's where things get into kind of a dark campaign. Then you look at like, we can take two adventures and look at them side by side. Rhyme and the Frostmaiden and Wild Beyond the Witchlight, right? Two hardcover adventures. And one thing that was a clear indicator of like a light adventure versus a dark adventure is like when I was doing my session zero and I wanted to write out the potentially disturbing themes that an adventure may have. And, you know, for like, for safety tool reasons, like, you know, to make sure that we have lines and veils and, and, and players can say, I do not want that in there. The, 
list of things for Rime of the Frostmaiden was so long, I looked at it and I was like, I can't imagine why anybody wants to play this, right? The themes were so severe throughout that whole adventure, all kinds of weird stuff, right? So yeah, 10 town, sac I could go on and on. 10 town sacrifices, cannibalism, child endangerment, animal cruelty, all, it just goes on and on and on, right? You know, incest and, and all kinds of weird stuff that's in that adventure, right? Body horror of all different kinds of body horror. And you're like, okay, well, that's a dark adventure. And then you look at Wild Beyond the Witchlight and you're like, what are my disturbing, potentially disturbing themes? And you're like, clowns, right? There's not a lot, right? There's not a lot of like, there's sort of like fairy tale violence. And so if you sit down and say that, that's one thing. And be like, what are the, what are like the potentially disturbing themes that I'm going to have? And you know, if you remove a lot of them, it's probably a more lighthearted campaign. So I think that those are a couple of ways. You know, think about those six truths and look at them and say, are these six truths really grim and dark? I think like the more, the clearer your villains are, the less dark it may be because like when the villains are like the people that are next to you, right? That's a, that's a different situation. And then think about what the themes of the adventure are. And then there's also general attitude. Like, you know, do you, what kinds of characters, you know, do you allow? What, what are the kinds of characters that are going to really, really uh, shine in this? You know, I'll, I'll give you an, another kind of example was when I wrote Ruins of the Grendel Root, one of the things I was worried about was that Ruins of the Grendel Root, because it was set underground, because it's set inside of the caverns of a big mountain, I was very worried that the adventure would have a dark theme to it. So I really pushed hard and I recommended to DMs that they, that they, they run it, that this is a mountain filled with wonder and exploration and a Deep Delver's Enclave, the central hub city, the central hub town that you're going from is a positive, optimistic place. That's the, look at the picture of the two people having coffee. You know, that is Deep Delver's Enclave from Ruins of the Grendel Root. And the intent was like, this is a fun place to be. They have celebrations all the time. They're, they do a lot of funny things. It's not this grim, even though like, you know, bad things happen there all the time. The reality is they're a positive group of people. So like if you have positive NPCs and you have sort of celebrations that are going on, uh, you can build a more lighthearted campaign. So I hope that answered uh, your question, Jamie. Matthew A says, oh, this is such a good one. Matthew A says, with many products, I have a tendency to only trust the products that the main company makes, like Watsy. But obviously, Watsy's adventures haven't been great. I'm going to argue that one a little bit. Without knowing all of the different authors on the DMs Guild or, the, or, or other locations, how does one learn which third-party products are worth looking at? Really good. That's a very good question. So I would argue that like many of Watsy's adventures are excellent right? And they can go back and forth. I, I love Curse of Strahd. I love Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, I like Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat. They all have kind of problems, but I really liked running them. Uh, so far, I really like Wild Beyond the Witchlight from what I've read. So, but they can be hit or miss. And you've heard me on this show say we, we that we shouldn't let our happiness with D&D depend upon what Wizards of the Coast does, right? And I still agree with that. Or that we should treat Watsi like a third-party publisher. And I think that that can sound insulting. Like I, I saw on Reddit, somebody brought that up and other people were like, why is everybody bashing Watsi? And I'm like, we're not bashing Watsi. I love third, I am a third-party publisher, <laughs> right? Like I love third-party publishers. MCDM and Monty Cook Games and Nord and 2C Gaming and Cobalt Press. You know, these are, these are fantastic companies of wonderful people, many of whom have worked at Wizards of the Coast. Wolfgang Bauer was the lead editor for Dragon Magazine and invented Planescape. Monty Cook worked at Wizards of the Coast and helped develop the third edition of D&D. Rob Hainso was one of the developers of fourth edition D&D. Jonathan Tweet was a third edition D&D. So these are people who have worked at D&D and love it so much, they're still working on D&D stuff, right? Bruce Cordell, one of the lead adventure writers for many, many D&D adventures, is now the adventure writer for, 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 for Monty Cook Games. So I love third-party publishers. Right. I think they put out outstanding stuff. And I love the stuff that comes a lot of the stuff that comes from Watsi. I think we can put it all on the same plate and say all of this great stuff is happening and we should treat them equally. Right. So, but how do you know which ones to follow, which ones not to? So past performance is as good an indicator as you're going to get about future performance when it comes to the quality of a DD product. So I think like it's unlikely Cobalt Press is going to put out a complete dud right? Because they put out, Cobalt Press puts out really, really good stuff. Cobalt Press, Monty Cook Games, Matt Coville Design, MCDM. So many, many good companies that are making excellent products. The two, the two Kickstarters that I just brought up, right? Raiders of the Serpent Sea, they have put out other books and I love them. Thus, I know, A, they can put out books, they can publish. And, you know, I can look at the past one and probably say, I'll bet you it's going to be this of a similar quality. They're not likely to have screwed that up. 
you know, I know that Morris and N-World have put out lots of different books and I've seen what they've been putting out here, right? They have lots of previews and stuff like that. I can, I can guess the kind of quality of the product I'm going to get, right? And also I'd, I'd argue the investment is relatively low. Like I'm not paying, I mean, I think like level up 5e looks pretty costly, but a lot of times it's like $10, $15 to try something out, right? And that seems like, well, you know, if you did it all the time, it's a lot of money, right? But if it's a total dud, you're not bankrupt, right? So the other, I'll give also one other clear indicator to me. One thing that I look for when I'm not sure about a product, when I don't, I haven't really heard about somebody before, the thing that I look for, and that's playtesting credits. Did they playtest this, right? Has other, have other people run this at the table and it came out well? And that's where I look at things and say like a monster book, the monster monster books that other people put out, have they play tested those monsters, right? And it doesn't matter if they fit the same theme and style and the same power balance of 5e. The question is, did they run them? And if they ran them, did they run well? And that's why I think like Cobalt Press Monsters run so well. In fact, I think many times Cobalt Press Monsters run better than Watsi Monsters. And the reason why is they've tested all, they, they, they're not... They're, they're not bound to whatever their math was when they started this. They instead put out a monster, run it, and then tweak it based on the results that they get back. So one of the indicators that, the, one of the primary indicators that I look for, and it depends on the kind of product too, right? A lore, a book about lore, I don't really need as much testing or maybe even an adventure. I probably don't need as much testing as I do for like a monster book, right? A monster book, like I talked to Ryan at 2C Gaming, right? And I talk about the playtest process that they go through to run those monsters. And they go through extensive playtesting on those monsters, really big, really high level monsters. And they've tested them out and run them. So I think that that, I think that that matters. Playtesting isn't perfect though, right? Different, who, who playtests it? What are they like? What kind of group? What are the conditions that they've run them under? How many they did? All those things are gonna factor in. But I tell you, I would to me, if you playtested it at all, you're better off than if you had ever playtested it. A good example that somebody brings up is Tomb of the Red Headsman, the adventure that I gave away on Patreon to patrons to thank them for all of their help for me getting the material ready for the Lazy DMs Companion. I wrote it, but I didn't test it, right? And they, some people played it and they're like, it was great. Those hellhounds kicked our asses. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Let's make it one hellhound. Or that pillar that commands you is really hard. And I'm like, let's make the DC lower, right? It would have been better if I had play tested it, right? Now, granted, it's sort of a thing I'm putting out to patron. I wrote it in one day. I put it out there. Yeah, it's a different kind of product. It's not the kind of thing I put out and sold for $5 or $10, right? It was an adventure that I put out as a thank you gift, right? So I give myself a little bit of a free pass on that one. But it would have been better play testing, absolutely. Would I do a Kickstarter on a product that I didn't play test? No. Have I play tested like a lot of the material that's in Lazy DM Companion? Yes. I've even pulled stuff out of the Companion that I have not tested because I know I'm not gonna get around to testing it. And I'm not sure that it's great. So it's not in the book, right? The stuff that's in the book, I've, I've used. You saw me use it. So I, Matt, I hope that helps. That's a great question. How do you identify third-party products? The other thing I'll mention is there's a, there's a lot of outstanding, I think that there's great, great products on the DMs Guild. There's also great, great products outside of the DMs Guild. So keep an eye out for products that are outside the DMs Guild. Kickstarters, patrons, Patreons, other producers. Because one thing you'll notice about the DMs Guild Monty Cook Games doesn't publish to the DMs Guild. Neither does Cobalt Press, neither does MCDM, neither does many of the other publishers that are out there. They don't do it to the DMs Guild because the DMs Guild is too limiting in its licenses. So take a look at other avenues for stuff and also look at stuff from other game systems, right? You know, there's lots of cool stuff that you can get from other game systems. So lots of places to look. Reviews are really good. Look for reviews, look for previews, download samples, try stuff out, get used to which publishers you think are really good uh, and look for playtests and see if the playtests are good. G great question. Chris B says, the chase rules in 5e aren't the best. I've been hoping to answer this question now for some time. I'm excited about this one. Chris B, the chase rules in 5e aren't the best and they tend to lead to clunky and boring scenes rather than, you know, the fun action of a chase scene. Have you, have you changed how you run chases? And if so, what is your method to keep the action quick, fun, and player-focused? Thank you. I have opinions about the D&D chase rules, and they're going to shock you. The number one thing to remember with chases is, in my opinion, right? I'm going to make a declarative statement. Don't plan a chase ahead of time, right? If you, if you plan a chase, you aren't creating a situation you are planning a type of scene. And if you plan a chase, 
it's gonna, you know, you're you're gonna end up force feeding a group through a particular ride instead of setting up a situation and letting them figure out how to deal with that situation. The example I will use is Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Waterdeep Dragon Heist has a big chunk of the book devoted to this large chase through Waterdeep. And the expectation of the adventure is that the chase will work a certain way. And in having run it twice, it never worked that way. And it might not work that way for a number of different reasons. But a big one is the players aren't going to do what you think they're going to do. They're either going to wait. And then, the you know, in the chase, they're, they're chasing an artifact through the city of, of Waterdeep. And it turns out it works way better to run that section of the game of did for me to run it as a to run it as a situation where an artifact is changing hands throughout the city maybe the characters chase it i had one group they did chase it and they were actually able they 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 lost it right they didn't get it but they were able to follow the leads and figure out where it went and that was enough for them to get to the next stage so the problem with the chase is usually there, there's only like supposedly one way to get in and there's only one way out. And a lot of times there's like a fixed ending. The worst case was in Waterdeep Dragon Heist where it actually has a, a box, a little block of text that talks about the fact that if the characters somehow acquire the artifact, that the artifact itself makes itself get lost again because the players can't have it. The characters can't have it. It's the worst railroad I've ever read in a published hardcover campaign. It was this just, you know, why is that in there, right? And that that's the problem when you're planning a chase ahead of time. My wife played in an adventure recently. It was an Adventures League adventure where there was a chase. And as soon as the chase occurred, the DM said, okay, we're going to, and I don't blame the DM for this. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I, don't, I haven't read the adventure, so I don't know if it's in the adventure this way, but I know the, how the DM ran it. And the DM said, okay, we're going to be in a chase scene. You can make a move and you can make a dash. If you make a dash, however, you have to make a con check or you're going to take a level of exhaustion. And they're like, why? I can make dashes all day long outside of a chase. Why, is, why do I take exhaustion inside of a chase, right? And, and you cannot use spells like Misty Step or Invisibility or Teleport or Walls or any of the spells that would circumvent the chase. You can't do those. And it's like, why not? Right. But so there were all of these like railroading limitations on how this chase was going to play out. And they all already had exhaustion from other things that they did. So it was like, you're going to force these levels of exhaustion on me anyway. So I was like, man. And then I thought, like, is that the way the Dungeon Master's Guide is written? Like the Dungeon Master's Guide has a section on chases. Is that how it's written? So yesterday I read it again. I went back and I pulled it up and I read it. And the chase rules in the DMG aren't so bad. And they're not so bad for a couple of reasons. That's my shocking take. My shocking take is that the DMG rules aren't so bad. And they're not so bad for a couple of reasons. One is they don't limit your ability to cast spells and do things. They say, no, you can, and the DM should adjudicate how they work, right? So you can cast Misty Step and get an angle on your, on your boss. <laughs> he says, bloody hell, I'm genuinely shocked is shocked. Yeah, they're they're not bad. They're not bad. The ones in the book are not bad. The other thing is they don't presuppose that you're building a chase scene. They're, they talk about the fact, let's pull them up here. So the DMG doesn't, doesn't talk about the fact that you should plan your chase scene ahead of time, right? It talks about the fact that, you know, there's, there's ways that movement works. It kind of expects that a chase happens organically. That's my number one tip. If a chase occurs, run it organically. Right. If it occurs, it occurs. And then you figure out how to adjudicate the chase. But don't plan a chase scene. Right. And certainly don't write a chase scene into an adventure because you don't know if it's going to work out that way. Right. So I, one of the things I like about it is it's not presupposing that a chase is planned ahead of time. And it talks about dashing and it does have the exhaustion thing, but it's three plus your constitution modifier number of times you can dash. I guess that's okay because if you're dashing and dashing and dashing, it's just interesting that this doesn't exist in combat, that you could dash in combat 50 times and nobody cares. But if you dash outside of combat, now you're of exhaustion. So, and it's a DC 10 check, right? Each additional dash during a chase creature succeed a DC 10 constitution check at the end or gain a level. So DC 10 is not so bad, right? Participant drops out of the chase if exhaustion reaches level five because they normally would. That makes sense because it normally would. Spells and so spells and attacks, you you know, you can still do all of your spells and other things normally. So you can, hey, that guy's running, I'm gonna hit him with a lightning bolt, right? So you could just ignore the dash rule, right? And then there's sign of ending a chase, you know, and, and and that's fine. Then then it gets into complications, and these are actually pretty cool. Random tables of things that could occur while you're chasing your victim. This is just sort of shaking up the environment, 
right? When you're running it. And, and that's, and that's pretty much it, right? So like, I, I'm not, there's, it's not a really heavy system here for running a chase. And it's more of the idea of like, if a chase happens, here's some things that can help you, which I think is a good way of doing it. So typically the problem with chase scenes is that you presuppose a chase and it doesn't end up that way. You end up limiting character options because you want the chase to go a certain way. And that's just a bad, that's, you know, and it's a bad D&D. Listen to me, like people are gonna go, I love my chase scenes, right? But it's not the way I would do it. I mean, it's not the way I would recommend doing it because I think limiting character, anytime you're limiting the agency of a character, players are going to get mad. And why are you doing it, right? Instead, set up the situation. If it turns into a chase, it turns into a chase. If it turns into an investigation, then it's an investigation, right? But, but let, let the scene, let the circumstances determine what kind of scene and then use rules to kind of adjudicate that scene. I think that's good. Then also, are you prepared for the chase to go one way and the other? Are you prepared for both circumstances? What if they catch their quarry in round one? What if the quarry gets away? Are both of those acceptable? If they're both acceptable, you're probably okay. If you have to have one of those take place and not the other, now you're in trouble. And that's when you get into this, like, probably the best thing to do is the worst thing, which is just say it, the, the guy gets away. At least the pain is short right? Like it, you're still going to get grumpy players, but at least they're going to be grumpy for a 30 second statement rather than 30 minutes of a bad chase that ends up being presupposed anyway. Really good question about chases. John B, you mentioned independent creators have other avenues outside the DMs Guild. This is a good question because this relates to the question we were answering before. Water. Darger says chase scenes are kind of like 5e's skill challenges and have all the problems those had. I got it. So John B says, you mentioned independent creators have other avenues outside of the DMs Guild in a previous show. Could you elaborate more on what those are or how you might suggest someone start publishing their own stuff? Yes. So I've, I've mentioned this before. What my, my concern with the DMs Guild that I don't think is always really clear to the people that put it there. And a lot of times what I see are people compare the DMs Guild to drive-thru. They'll say, well, if I put a thing up on drive-thru, it's going to get less popularity as a 5e product than I put it on the DMs Guild, which is absolutely true. Except five, if you put it on DMs Guild, that is the only place you can ever put it, right? It's the only place you can ever put it. If you put it on drive-thru, you could put it anywhere else. You can sell it yourself. You can run a Kickstarter. You can offer it as part of a Patreon deal. You can put it up on itch.io. Itch you can make parts of it free, right? When, when you put it on other avenues outside of the DMs Guild, you have a really wide range of different places that you can put it and sell it or, or break it up into pieces or sell it in different models that you can't do inside the DMs Guild. Because once a product's in the DMs Guild, it's locked into the DMs Guild forever. And you can't ever sell it anywhere else. So what the other avenues that I would recommend, I, I think you could do worse than to uh, put it up on the on, on, on drive-thru RPG. You, you know, drive-thru, I, I have all my books on drive-thru RPG. All of my books will be on drive-thru RPG. But you also have access to things like putting it up as a pin-on-demand book on Amazon, right? Kickstarter, we just talked about how great Kickstarter is as a way to gauge interest in a product. So the, the, the real issue with publishing has less to do with the platform, except the DMs Guild versus non-DMs Guild, because are you going to lock yourself in the DMs Guild or not? I'm not convinced. I hear lots of people say that like the DMs Guild is the better avenue to get a, a, a 5e compatible product in the view of people. I don't, I think that's really hard to measure. So I'm not saying it's not true. It probably is true, but it's, it's hard to tell like how much more. So if you put a product up on the DMs Guild, are you certain that if you put the exact same product up on drive-thru that you would get less? Probably you would, but you can't do it because you can't put the same product on both places. So you can't really tell. So, so what I recommend is, but the hardest part is just getting visibility, right? How do people, how do you get attention to your product? And that's really hard to do. And it's really hard to start. You know, it's really hard to kind of make those end roads you know, where, where you can start getting attention. So the number one thing that I recommend to independent creators that they do is start a newsletter. You can start a newsletter for free. It is, I, I, I think I've made this statement before. The social media platform of the future is email, right? I, it's kind of my joke, right? All of the other social media platforms that are out there are owned by other companies. And even as a creator, you may not be their market. You may be their marketing right? And I've done a fair bit of research on my own of the value of Twitter and Instagram and other social media platforms. The one social media platform that I use that has been very successful for me is Kickstarter. I love Discord, but it's probably not the best publisher platform. But, but among many other publishers that I talk to, 
and myself, and we've all come to the same agreement and we're all looking at it and we're not by, I mean, are we biased? I don't know why you'd be biased towards an email list. I don't think I'm biased. I probably am, I guess, but I don't know why I would be. But trust me, we have lots of data to back it up. And the data is that if you want a return on, you know, you want a return on, uh, on an output, email is a really, really great return on, on investment. I think it's like 20, the last time I looked, it was like 20 to 40 times more likely for somebody to click a link and buy something from an email than it was from a tweet, right? Now there are different levels of platforms. Email is a different, more intimate experience than a Twitter tweet is. So it's like saying a billboard versus being inside of a store, right? Kind of a difference, but still way more efficient to do that. And it's a social media platform you control because you can move your email list anywhere. So number one thing I say, start an email list, give good things away to the people who subscribe to your email list, give them gifts, give them things that they can use, put yourself in their circumstances, build small products that you can deploy. I, I have that adventure, Tomb of the Red Headsman, right? Small products, right? The, a lot of the material from the Lazy DMs Companion started as one page guides, right? I want to do small things that could help people. So I think that aiming small and then in the other platform, there's so many platforms, right? So you have email, your email list, web, your own website, Patreon, Kickstarter, DriveThruRPG, Amazon. There's so many different places where you can, where you can start to put your material out there. But the hard part is getting the attention on your particular thing. So, so John B, I would say the, the, the number one tip that I would offer for somebody that's just getting started publishing their own stuff is start an email newsletter and then work all of your other social platforms to draw people towards your newsletter, right? Like tell people you have a newsletter and tell people that if they sign up, they're going to get a cool thing, right? And lots of other publishers that I've worked with have done this and it's been very successful for them. Great, great question. I think that is going to end the show for today. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning to talk about D&D. It's such a great pleasure to hang out and talk about D&D. I really appreciate it. If you like this show and you want to help me out, there's four things you can do. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter, which I was just talking about. You can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. You can support me directly on Patreon, or you can pick up any of my books. Thank you very much and have a great day.